By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. In the 12 months since Russia invaded Ukraine, we have seen energy prices skyrocket and then fall a bit again. Inflation reached the highest levels in decades, and political sacred cows fall by the wayside. While European economies haven't suffered as much as had been initially feared, it's still going to take years to replace Russian gas supply. At the same time, the challenges of high government debt and the need to decarbonize economies haven't gone anywhere. So today we ask, one year on, what are the long-term economic effects of the war in Ukraine? I'm Sarah Carlson, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, where we answer the big questions facing credit markets. On this episode, we have a special interview. Last week, Moody's held its annual Credit Trends Conference in Paris, where we were very lucky to have Jeremy Zettelmeyer as a keynote speaker. Jeremy is the director of Bruegel, one of the world's leading economics and policy think tanks, and is based in Brussels. His leadership at Bruegel follows a career that includes time at the International Monetary Fund, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, the German Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy, and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. I sat down with Jeremy shortly after the event to get his thoughts on long-term implications for Europe of the war in Ukraine and the impact of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. We should note that the views expressed by external guests on this podcast are theirs alone and are not those of Moody's. So without further ado, here's the conversation. So, Jeremy, welcome to The Big Picture. Pleasure to be here. I wanted to start just with a very broad question because it's been nearly a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. But when you look ahead, what are we going to think have been the most important long-term effects of this geopolitical event for the economies of Europe, but also the political economy of Europe. Right. So it has pretty fundamentally transformed uh, the political economy of Europe. It has focused us much more on external threats. It has obviously changed our relationship with Russia uh, in a deeper way. It has transformed the structure of our energy supply. It has placed greater emphasis on the importance of a functioning internal energy market that we had. It has most likely, uh, in spite of the temporary greater use of some fossil fuels like uh, um, coal, uh, accelerated uh, decarbonization because uh, it is now on everyone's mind that you know longer term energy prices will be higher uh and uh this hopefully will guide uh, investment uh it will also guide uh, the uh, electricity market design reform that the commission has been uh talking about okay it's a long list of policy objectives and policy goals for europe so one of the things you've alluded to in various parts of your answer was the security of the European energy system. Have you had to give a report card for progress in securing the European energy system? 
How would you assess it? And what's the most important work that you see that still remains to be completed? So what we have done quite successfully, but also with a dose of good luck, is to manage the energy crisis in the the short term. And we have done it through a combination of demand reduction and by successfully tapping into the global LNG market and building up capacity there that we didn't have. Uh, What we now need to do is to invest more uh, to structurally increase the energy supply and also to make the market more interconnected and more efficient within, within Europe. And so this involves, for the most part, renewables. It involves some cross-border infrastructure. And then in the longer term, it involves thinking about how heavy are we going to go into green hydrogen? Where is this going to come from? So there are sort of, if you like, there's kind of three phases, right? One is to deal with the next winter. Uh, one is with the medium term, which is largely a renewables agenda. And then there is the green hydrogen a- issue uh, lurking in the background, which I think that we are still not fully clear on uh, how far we want to push this. What surprised you most that you've seen in the last year in this area? Well, what initially su- surprised me, but it wasn't, um, in the end, it, it was perhaps, I should not have been surprised, is that the divisions that opened up in the energy front did not seem to relate very closely uh, to the relative vulnerabilities of countries in energy, but rather to fiscal positions. So essentially the ability of countries uh, to finance support programs. In the end, that is not so surprising because you know fiscal space is determinative in how you respond to a crisis. But many of the divisions that uh, that came uh, that that came to the fore, sort of three to four months into this crisis, right? Which initially um, was a moment of unity, and then it sort of drifted apart. Uh, had to do with these traditional fiscal divides, and and so you know, for me, it's a reminder that. Fiscal issues are at the heart of European integration and can also be a source of disunity. And we need to overcome this both about uh, through fiscal consolidation at the national level and by thinking about uh, common solutions. And then, you know, the the other thing that's noteworthy against it, maybe it was not a surprise, but but uh, we then uh, managed to actually move on um, in a pretty constructive way. And I think the European Commission actually gets uh, Quite uh, quite a big uh, credit, so it, it's almost like the end of the year was this turning point where effectively the energy policy agenda for the short term had been worked through, um, and then luckily energy prices came down, and we were then able to concentrate on completely different things, which was, for the most part, Europe's response to the Inflation Reduction Act and and this uh, this agenda. There are a couple issues I want to come back to in a minute, specifically some of the fiscal challenges as well as the Inflation Reduction Act. But you mentioned a few minutes ago the priority that has been given to the decarbonization agenda. But it does seem that certainly to deal with the short term, there have been hard choices that have had to be made. For example, increasing the use of coal for energy production, which 
at least at a glance, can look like uh, some backward movement when actually we're trying to move toward decarbonization. So are you worried that over the medium to long term, having to make some of the, you know, take into account some of these trade-offs has pushed decarbonization too far down the list of priorities and that it becomes maybe that we had one step forward, two steps back? Or do you have a more optimistic take on this? I have a more optimistic take. I think we've it's it's more like one step back and two steps forward. Okay. <laughs> so so I, I, I do think that the net result will be acceleration of renewables. There is maybe the possibility that, that nuclear will be given a, a bigger significance as well. And then I view the um, uh, the coal issue as uh, transitory, but but clearly, you know, we will have to have some patience with countries like Poland that are going to need some uh, some time there. But you see, I don't. I, I think that you know this was, in a sense, built in to the original decarbonization plans. I, I'm not sure, but I may also know not not know enough specifically about Poland whether this sets them back. Uh, further, right? So they have a new um, gas supply uh, source uh, from Norway, uh, for example. Uh, so I, I, I'm, you know, on the whole, I think we, we are making progress. You just mentioned nuclear. How optimistic are you that some of the pretty profound differences of view between EU member states, for example, between France and Germany, that this gulf in in point of view can be bridged on the nuclear question because it does seem like that's that's probably one of the most persistent differences of opinion be between the big member states so i i don't think it will be bridged but i think it it can be managed right so i think you can have a well functioning literacy market even if you have different structures of supply i think there are some forms of intervention in the electricity market like the uh, famous um, Iberian exception, the, the gas price cap in the power uh, market, that because of these differences in energy structure would have had big distributional implications and you know was essentially ruled out as, as a result. But I think that it is possible to live with uh, structural differences um, and, and still have uh, you know, energy union as uh, in the sense of a functioning internal uh, and, uh, electricity market, and also in the sense of having sort of common instruments that uh, encourage uh, long-term investment. I want to come back to these issues around fiscal policy and government debt, because if we look at some of the spending packages that have been taken to protect households' purchasing power, to protect vulnerable companies, I mean, you know well because Bruegel produced really the definitive data set on uh, the size of these packages in gross terms in Europe. Some of them are quite staggeringly large, which comes on top of all of the spending that was undertaken to combat the effects of the COVID pandemic. How worried are you about government debt levels in Europe and what are the kinds of difficult choices that you think countries are likely to need to make, and which countries particularly worry you? Right. So, so I'm, I'm somewhat worried. I'm not like super alarmed, but I'm definitely more worried than I was uh, um, 
a couple of years ago. Now, the, the main reason for the worry is not necessarily, I think, these support packages. I think, you know, to, to the, they were really driven and they would have been very costly by the world of extremely high uh, gas prices uh, in which we were for a few months. I think that if we manage to stabilize prices in the region in which they are now, they will come off, right? So uh, I, I don't think uh, that the, you know, the political economy will be such that packages that were currently designed to be temporary will be prolonged because of huge pressure, right? So, uh, so in that sense, I'm, I'm not terribly worried. What, what I'm worried about is that we are in a, a world of permanently higher interest rates. This is not a given. Uh, but certainly markets believe that to some extent. And as a policy economist, it is a bit difficult for me to base a policy advice on the premise that markets are wrong when markets take a relatively pessimistic view that is obviously not driven by panic, but rather it is driven by uh, concerns that, you know, policy may have to be tighter uh, in the future that perhaps some of the structural factors that we're driving long-term interest rates are going to come off. So, you know, they may be convinced of the opposite and they may come down, but having interest rates in the order of uh, 2% in real terms is not uh, historically un unusual. And, and so when I then put these types of interest rates in, in uh, fiscal assumptions, you do get that uh, some countries are pretty far off uh, where they should be with respect to their deficits to stabilize their debt levels. And projections over, say, a five-year period by the International Monetary Fund in October uh, do not imply that all European countries are going to sort of make the 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 efforts you would like them to see to get to those uh, debt stabilizing primary balances and this is true even with these you know rel still relatively low interest rates and this is true even based on the assumptions of the IMF that temporary measures will come off and that countries will do some adjustment over over the medium term well, i also wanted to come back to the issue of the inflation reduction act and obviously, some of the provisions of this legislation have attracted a great deal of attention from European policymakers. Do you see the IRA as having much of an impact on Europe? And how do you assess the European policy response thus far? So I think the IRA can have a significant impact on energy intensive sectors that are in the renewables, in the clean tech space, and as such are uh, eligible for large subsidies. So it, I think it can have a significant sectoral impact uh, by adding to the already greater attractiveness of the United States on a number of uh, dimensions, particularly lower uh, electricity prices. Now, is this going to be sort of a blow to European structural competitiveness? Probably not. 
so European firms that move are of course going to benefit. This may benefit them in third markets. The loser here will be the European workers uh, that otherwise would have uh, been involved with the production that now happens in the in the United States. I, I do think that Europe needs to respond to this, but when we respond to it, we need to do so with a broader set of objectives than simply, if you like, persuading those uh, companies to stay. Uh, so the types of activities that are being subsidized uh, in the US are not necessarily in the European uh, comparative advantage. And so while I am not going to say no to industrial policy as a, uh, as a as an instrument, I would focus it differently. I would not focus it on trying to replicate the subsidies of the IRA, but on trying to make substitution of European companies away from value chains that are too reliant on China or too uh, reliant on suppliers that might be susceptible to disruptions easier. So I would focus on these critical sectors, if if you like. And I would also focus on uh, bringing innovations to markets. Just to close, I want to ask you uh, the similar question that we always ask people to close the big picture, and that's at the current conjuncture, what do you see as being the most important risk that you don't think is, receives as much attention as it deserves? There is a, a big looming issue that did receive a, a lot of uh, attention a few years ago, but has now sort of gone out of our collective attention. And that has to do with our relationship with uh, poor countries that are on our, are on our doorstep. And I, I don't want to say that this is only a risk, right? So basically, I'm referring to Africa and, and migration. We're going to have to have a clearer strategic sense of how we want to shape that relationship, both to deal with the potential disruptive effects of migration flows on European domestic politics, uh, within country, but also across country, because we have seen in 2015, 2016, that this can be a very strong source of division, um, but also to deal with the opportunity, which is that, you know, we have a demographic issue in Europe, we have a skills issue, and the African continent is the one area in the world which will grow uh, population-wise. So basically to, to manage uh, that risk and, and ex at the same time maximize the opportunity, I think that that's going to be a really big task. Jeremy, thank you very much. That's all we have time for today. So until next time, I'm Sarah Carlson, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts. <laughs>